we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at a very familiar story in the Bible in the Old Testament. Now, there are certain Bible stories, in my opinion, that need no introduction whatsoever. Uh, they are so well known that even people outside of the church who, who may never actually read the Bible have heard about them. And as I was thinking about that, there were some things in the Bible, some stories, so to speak, that came up. Adam and Eve being one of them. It's a very familiar Bible story. Same thing with Noah's Ark. What about Moses in the Red Sea or, or Joshua in the walls of Jericho or Daniel in the lion's den, David in Goliath? All stories that even people outside of the church know. Now, while we make that list, and that list could be so much longer than it really is, or at least what I spoke, there is one that I would not want us to forget to add to that list, and it's the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's a, a story about a father and a son. So if you if you got your Bibles and you are there, I want you uh, to just follow along with me. I'm going to start in verse number one. And it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to note that. He said, only son. Note, note that. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we will come again to you. Notice, he said, we will come again to you. In verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his son in his hand and the knife or the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. In verse number nine, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place and we thank you, God, for the truths that we are about to see here today. But Lord, I ask of you right now to help us not tune out uh, as this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. And so Lord, show us something fresh, show us something new, show us where we need to submit to you, where we need to lay things down at the altar for you. God, help us to see that we will be tested, but that we, we can we can trust in you, and when we trust in you, we will triumph. And so, God, I'm asking uh, right now for you to do a fresh work in this place. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen 
and amen. So the very first thing I want us to see in our passage of scripture this morning is the testing of Abraham. The testing of Abraham right out of the gate. In, in the very first verse, he said, after these things, God tested Abraham. And there's this, this section of scripture here. And when we read this story, we begin to face several problems. The, the first and probably the largest deals with the issue of God's character. How could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? How could he do that? Now, some critics and, and some atheists have even written books about the fact that they, they have attempted to dismiss this story on the grounds that it presents some grotesque caricature of who God is in the Bible. And as I, I, I think about the things that people say about this passage of Scripture, there's perhaps only one reply that I can think of, the one that's adequate enough, and it's obvious that we as humans are hardly in a position to criticize God. That would have been a great spot for an amen, church. We are hardly in a position to criticize God on any grounds whatsoever. And so there's the second problem, though. Uh, aside from that, the second problem is more or less related to the first. Why? Because as human beings, we all feel the problem of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. We all feel it. There is an unconscious tendency for us to read this story backwards. We, we start with the fact that, that Abraham ends up not having to put his own son to death. We just read it. And for those of you who have been in church in any length of time, you know that he doesn't have to sacrifice his son. And so we see this passage of scripture and we're like, oh, we read it from, from backwards. Uh, and we know. And we say, well, God never wanted Isaac to die. We see that from scripture. He, he saved him. Now that statement is, is true on one level, but all too often we risk missing the meaning of this text specifically if we go too far down that road. Whatever else we may say about this passage of scripture, it is unquestionably true that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. He asked him. And there are two things in the, the first two verses that tell us what's at stake here. I want us to look back at them at verse 1 and 2. And after these things, God tested Abraham and he said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Abraham's replying. And so God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I will tell you. It, it would have been enough for God to simply say, take your son. That's it. It would have been sufficient. But he didn't. He said, your only son. Now, I want you to please note here, God was not forgetting that the Abraham had another son in Ishmael. That's not what he was saying here. When he said, take your son, your only son, he was talking about Isaac being the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, the promised son, the son for whom Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years after the promise to receive the one whom he loved. These words from God were meant to reassure Abraham that God knew exactly what he was doing when he asked. And by saying it this specific way, Abraham would know that God understood what it would cost him to obey. But I want us to be clear about what God is asking here because we have a tendency to, to just think, oh, well, you know, he laid him down and everything was all hunky-dory and he raised the knife and the angel came and everything's all good. 
But I want you guys to understand what it meant to sacrifice something. God wanted Abraham to travel with his son to Moriah, which is what we know today as Jerusalem, the, the place of Jerusalem. And he was to build an altar of stone upon that mountain. It, it would be a, a massive work, a job in which Abraham would have to do. And after that stone altar was built, he would then make a platform of wood and he would place it upon that altar. And then Abraham was asked to have Isaac laid down, tied up and laid down. And here's the part that people uh, have a, a tendency to skip over and it's this, that when the knife was raised, when something was sacrificed, the throat would be split in two, so blood would spill out all over the entire altar. This is what God asked Abraham to do to his son. And then finally, after his son was dead, he would light the wood, burning his son's body as an offering to God. This is what God asked Abraham to do. This is what he was told to do. And at this point, the man of faith only has two options. Obey or disobey. That's it. Church, I want you to please note something this morning. Probably one of the hardest things in this life. Do you know that if we stop, when God gives us a command in his scripture, if we, if we stop to argue with God about that command, it's disobedience. Just because you've questioned him. If you try to talk God out of a command that he's given to you, that is also disobedience. If you try to come to God with some alternate plan after he's given a clear command, that is also disobedience. As, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to do as God's word commands us to do. We should never stray from that. The moment we stray is the moment we begin to walk in worldliness. We should stay on course. That's why, that's why it was spoken about that the way is narrow and there will be few who will follow it. Few. Not tons, not loads of people that are coming on. Few will follow the narrow way. But let's look back to verse number three. And so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. So the second thing I want us to see this morning is that Abraham trusts in God. He, he was tested. Now Abraham is trusting God in the midst of this testing. At this point, the writer here wants us to think about what is at stake. What is about to occur here in the story. Now, naturally... We have uh, a tendency to focus on the unimaginable sorrow of losing a child right here. The unimaginable sorrow. You know, to any parent, um, that alone is an unspeakable tragedy. 
Um, no, no parent, nothing in all of the world seems more unnatural than a parent burying their own child. Um, I, I thought very deeply about this and, and talked extensively with my wife this week as our first child we had to lay, uh, lay to rest. I thought that there was nothing more unnatural than a parent having to lay their child in the grave. And in this case here, God told Abraham to offer up his son. And Abraham was fully prepared to do it. So prepared, in fact, that the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Meaning that he willingly did so. And, and that when he laid his son on that altar and he raised the knife, he fully intended to put his son to death. That's where Abraham was at. And our minds focus on the aspect of the death because it's sorrowful, because it's personal. But the writer wanted us to think of something different, something else. God had already promised Abraham the head of a great nation. He already promised that that nation would be uh, greatly blessed and that the world would be blessed through him. We saw this several chapters ago. It already came and God said that he would bring forth that nation from Isaac's descendants. But then it, it begs the question, how could that happen if Isaac, who's only a teenager, is dead? How could that be? Uh, we're faced with, with what critics call an enormous contradiction in Scripture. God promised to bring forth offspring through Isaac, and then there's this promise, and then this command to sacrifice him seem to contradict one another. How is that possible? How is it that if Abraham obeys the command, the promise of God would be canceled? Would it not? That the son would be dead. But if, if Abraham disobeyed, then what happens to the promise? If he disobeyed God, does that promise still come? And so these questions begin to appear in, in Scripture. And all of a sudden, we see the shining and most amazing beyond this world character of Abraham's faith. He didn't know how God would do it. He, he just knew that somehow God would do it. Somehow God was going to still bring that promise to fruition. And herein lies probably one of the biggest lessons for us as believers. Do you know when God makes us a promise, it's foolish and disbelief to wonder how he will keep his word. It's, it's foolishness and disbelief for us to think of how God is going to keep his word. Why? Because faith does not reckon with how. Faith does not reckon with how. Faith believes and leaves the how into the hands of God. That's what faith, that's what living a life of faith, you know, is trying to spend too much time figuring out the how of, of how God is going to take care of us is, is likely to talk us into a corner. There's no way for us to get out of it. And as we ponder this amazing story, we must remember that Abraham had no idea, none whatsoever of what was about to happen when he and Isaac started on that three-day journey. Nothing. All we know is that Abraham set out to obey. That was it. He set out to obey God, and he knew the one who had called him, and he knew that he had called him to offer his beloved son, and he would answer and solve the question 
of how. Why? Because he left it in the hands of God. Christian, church, friend, friend in this place. There are times in our lives, many, many times in our lives when our only job is to take the next step and that's it. Just to take another step. There are times when we're not called to figure everything out. We're not called to see everything in the big picture. We're not called to explain where every single path is going to lead. You know, when God says to go, we should go. And when God says to stay, we should stay. And when God says, give me the, the one thing, the dearest, most precious thing that you hold, you hold tightly, give it to me, we give. That's, that's the life of faith on display. That there is the true life of following after God. And so the last thing I want us to see this morning is that Abraham triumphs because he trusted in God. He triumphs. You know, twice in this passage, Abraham implies or, or hints that he expects that somehow, some way, God is going to work things out so that Isaac would live. Two times, he says, when he saw Moriah in the distance, he gave this instruction. Look back at verse number five. He says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over here or over there and worship. And look what he says. And we will come again to you. We will come again. Did you get it? He, he said, we will come back. Not I will come back, but we we will come back. Abraham believed that he and his son would somehow return together. And then as the two of them walk along, Isaac is carrying the wood for the, for the sacrifice. And he says, Father, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, Dad? And Abraham's reply has become a synonym. For the man of faith, speaking faith into what seems like a humanly hopeless situation. What did Abraham say? He says, son, God himself is going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. God himself. And then, yes, yes, amen. And the writer of Hebrews explains to us what we don't see in this passage as to why Abraham could talk that way. And those verses are going to come up onto the screen for you. Abraham uh, 11, 17 starts out by saying this, by faith Abraham, and, and hang on that slide, I'll tell you when to go to the next one. But by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only begotten son. We see right here, the writer of Hebrews tells us that as far as Abraham was concerned, the sacrifice was complete. And in his will and in his purpose, he really did sacrifice his son. But look at the, re the next part of it. It says, of whom it was said that through Isaac shall your offspring be named, accounting that God was able. Accounting that God was able. The ancient Greek word translating accounting here means just what it sounds like in our English language. It's a term that comes from the arithmetic expression of something that is decisive or, or carefully reasoned in its action. And this is what Abraham is saying. He said, I know that God's promise is worthy of confidence. I know. And he goes on to say that accounting God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which 
figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead and didn't have any idea of how he would do it. He'd never even seen it before. He reasoned from what he knew about God to what he knew about the situation. And the only thing that Abraham could come up with is I'm going to put my own son to death and God is going to raise him from the dead. God's going to raise him from the dead. And it's pretty fantastic, really, if you think about it. It's fantastic that especially since no one in history had ever been raised from the dead. And this happened nearly 2,000 years before Christ even came onto the picture. But it turns out that Abraham was right. God did raise the dead. A fact that was proven not just by the Bible, but history itself. There are over a hundred eyewitnesses to Jesus post-resurrection. The empty tomb outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Moriah, people. Moriah is outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus was risen from the dead. The one thing that Abraham was wrong about was Isaac dying that day. That's it. He didn't literally die because at the very last second, Abraham saw a ram that was caught in the thicket. A ram that was placed there by God and he offered the ram in the place of his son. So figuratively, he received Isaac back from the dead. In this moment of time, we can stand back and we see this story with such a clear perspective. God God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Yes, Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know in advance how it was all going to end? No, he didn't. But what was it that Abraham did know? He knew what God had asked him to do, and he knew that God had promised him a son, whom through that son would bless the world. But what he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile the promise and the command. He had no clue. And at this point, we see Abraham's faith at its highest, at its very best. That even though the command made no sense from a human perspective, Abraham intended to obey it anyways. He meant to obey God's command even though it meant killing God's promise. But how could a man do such a thing? Because he believed that God could raise the dead because he believed and for 2,000 years post Christ Christians have seen this story as a picture of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in Genesis 22 we get a picture of what man would do because he loved God but at Calvary we get a picture of what God did because he loved man Abraham was only asked to sacrifice his son, but God actually sacrificed his son. More than that, Jesus endured physical death, spiritual death, just so that he could obtain redemption for sinners. 
And when God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was not a single person to cry out, Stop! Do not harm your child. There was no ram in the thicket that was offered in Jesus' place. There was, there was no one there to take it. And so God's hand fell in judgment on his son and Jesus died for me and for you. Abraham offered his son. God offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried the cross. Isaac was laid on the altar as Jesus was nailed to his altar. Abraham was willing to put his son to death, but God willed that his son should die. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac, but Christ was offered in the place of every sinner. Abraham received his son back figuratively as Jesus literally rose from the dead. But as we think about this story, the question is then posed to us, what are we supposed to take away? What are we supposed to take away from this passage of Scripture? Because as I read this passage this week, as I read this entire chapter, I was struck by something God said to Abraham after the trial was over. After the ram was sacrificed, after Isaac was spared and the promise was reaffirmed. God says this in verse number 12. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Listen to what he says. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You did not withhold from me. God says, I asked you for your most precious possession, and you gave it to me anyways. And as I read, as I read this portion of scripture, a song from my childhood came back to me with these familiar words that said, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold. And I love this, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. Hello? Can you guys hear me still? Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. And it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. And then he says this, take myself and I will ever be only all for thee. And as we see this passage in, in light of this simple song, it seems almost simple to explain, but it takes a lifetime to learn. 
I dare stand before you today and say that God leads most of us again and again and again up Mount Moriah. I dare say that we have, are asked over and over to sacrifice the dearest and the best in our lives. There's a man by the name of Watchman Nee who wrote in a book and he said this, that we approach God like little children with open hands, begging for gifts. And he goes on to say that because he is a good God, he fills our hands with good things, with life, with friends, with health, with money, with recognition, marriage, children, a home, a job. And these are all things that we count at Thanksgiving when we count our blessings. Then he goes on to say, and so like children, we rejoice in what we have received. And we begin to run around comparing what we have with each other. And he said, but then our hands are finally full. And God says, my child, I long to have fellowship with you, so reach out and take my hand. And we say to God, but we can't do it because our hands are full. God, we, we can't. We can't reach out and take your hand. We cry out, and God says to put those things aside and come to me. And we're like, God, we can't. It's too hard. It's too hard to lay, lay aside the things that you have given to us. And God said, but I'm the one who gave it to you in the first place. And we're like, God, what, what you've asked us to do is just so hard. Please, please don't ask us to put these things aside. And God says, you must. You must. You know, God made me face this truth the very hard way many years ago. A friend of mine, um, a friend of mine was, was sitting with me over coffee and, and he said to me, Josh, you're holding on too tight. And I knew in that very moment of time exactly what my friend meant. Those words were probably the truest words that I had heard in months and they cut deep. And I didn't want to admit it. And so I continued to, to hold on to that thing that had become so dear to me. And I had to begin walking through this, the, the, the process of Christian growth in which God breaks our idols from our lives one by one by one. And I began to understand how painful it was because we love our idols. We love the things that we hold most dear. The tricky part with this is the fact that most of our idols are, are per perfectly good things. The thing that I was holding on so tightly was not anything bad or evil or wrong. It was my wife. I had been in a lot of bad relationships, and as had my wife. My wife had gotten out of a, an abusive relationship before we got together. And things quickly uh, turned in a very bad way as I had placed my wife uh, upon a pedestal in my life. She meant the world to me, and I wanted to make sure that she never was without, and she had everything that she wanted, and she was always happy. And so I began to sacrifice the things that really should have been in, the, in their place, and that was my relationship with God. 
My relationship with God began to falter. I stopped reading my Bible. I wasn't attending churches regularly. And things took a spiral hard and fast. I had placed my wife as the God in my life. And I honestly wish that she was up here. She's serving downstairs. God had given me something good. I am blessed every day um, that I, I get to have my wife. She's one of the most precious people to me. Um, she is probably one of the most grace-filled, kind-hearted people I've ever met in my life. She is a saint in my eyes. I mean, in, in God's eyes too, because she's a child of God. But in my eyes, from an earthly perspective, she is a saint. And she'd become too important to me. I would sacrifice anything for her happiness. And we had to come to a place where I had to lay it down. My, my friend sat across the table from me and we were in the midst of these marital problems and we were not sure if we were even going to last. I was in ministry. Our life was falling apart. And we weren't sure if we were even going to make it. We had talked about divorce. We had talked about just calling it quits because we, we just couldn't reconcile things. And the reason we couldn't reconcile things is because I had held her at such a high standard that she hurt me and I couldn't get over it. I couldn't forgive her because she had done something wrong to me because I had placed her as the God. Why would the God in my life hurt me this way? And when my buddy sat across that table and, and he said to me, Josh, you're holding on too tight. It was like a knife. And I began to realize that, that an idol is anything good that becomes too important to us. An idol is anything that becomes too important to us. Anything. We, we tend to associate idols in our day with those heathen statues that are made of gold and silver or stone and wood, as they're talked about in the Old Testament. And if that is all an idol was, then man, we're in the clear, because we don't have those here in our day and age, at least not here in Ionia. We, we, we think that because we don't bow down before weird statues and, and offer pig's blood to them, that they're not idols. And we think to ourselves, like, why would we do something like that? I, I would never do that. But an idol doesn't need to be a statue. An idol could be anything. Your children. Your fame. Your reputation. Your money. Your house. Your car. The degree that you've earned. The, the, the buildings that you've built. The, the budgets that you've balanced. The books that you wrote. The songs that you sung. The trips that we've made. All of those things make us feel comfortable and, and safe, but they give us status in the world. Your spouse could be your idol. Your family, your children, your money, your ministry. 
could even be an idol. Your career. You know, I've come to learn in my, my short 32 years of life that there's nothing wrong with being married. There's nothing wrong with having a family or, or raising your kids. There's nothing wrong with having a career. There's nothing wrong with making money or getting an education or having a ministry or making our way in the world. None of those things are wrong. They're all good things. But anything good can become an idol. And that's the real challenge, I, I believe, here in this text. That anything good can become an idol. Abraham had to come to a place where he was willing to give back to God what was always God's in the first place. In my own case, when God began to, to pry my fingers, figuratively, that is, please don't get any wrong impressions, when God began to pry my fingers off of my wife, I, I, I got down to my thumb and I wanted to fight back. But my friend sat across the table from me at another time and he said, Josh, your arms are too short to box with God. He's going to win every single time. And eventually my thumb was pried off. Then he took back the thing that he, he, he had that belonged to him in the first place. And whenever I, I tell this story, I want to make it a point, church, to, to say this to you in the most loving of ways. I, as your pastor, I, I beg of you to hold lightly to what you value greatly. Because it does not belong to you anyways. Hold lightly to what you value greatly. Because it does not belong to you anyways. Every time I, I say that. Heads around the room nod because it's true. Well, we've come into this life with nothing. And we will leave with nothing. And in between, God fills our hands with good things. And then he asks us to give them back to him so that we can walk in fellowship with him. And how painful is that process? I think every person in this room understands a little bit. I found in my own life and in talking with many people that it's a process. Uh, uh, the process of letting go is the work of our lifetime. It continues on until we're no longer here. And for most of us, there isn't simply one crisis moment, but rather it's a continual letting go of things. Maybe it's even the same thing. When I have the courage to open my hand and to let go, I get up the next morning and I want to try and grab it right back. Anybody else ever find themselves there? And it seems to be a lesson that we have to learn over and over and over again. And then God in his kindness keeps bringing us back to Moriah. He keeps bringing us back to the place of sacrifice. Back to the, the place where we offer up to God our dearest and our best. And we say, Lord, it all belongs to you anyways. But I want you to notice that I said God in his kindness. You know, it's the, the kindness of God that led Abraham to that mountain. 
It was God's kindness that leads us back to the place of sacrifice where we yield up to him our dreams and our desires and our plans and our hopes and the things that we own, our dearest friends, our loved ones, and finally we give to him the life that he gave to us from the very beginning. It's God's kindness that's on display, interwoven all throughout the pages of Scripture. You know, when we struggle with God, and we try so desperately to hold on to the things that we value so much, it may not feel like God's kindness, but it is. You know, God knows way better than we do. And as long as we hold on, things become idols to us. And any idol, especially the good ones, the gifts that God has given to us become too important. And they begin to come between us and God. You know, God loves us supremely and he wants what's best for us. But then we finally come to a place where we have the courage to let go. Have you ever been in that place before? You finally had the courage to let go of the thing that you held most dear. And when we try desperately to hold on, and then we open our hands to God and we hold lightly the things that we value greatly. Then and, and only then, I believe we're truly free. And as I was putting this together, I started to type the word happy. And then I thought to myself that it wouldn't really quite fit, would it? Because the yielding up process is very painful. And it does not feel very good at all. And it doesn't even feel good sometimes when it's over. So happy is not really the, white, the, the right word, but free is. You are truly free when you've given it up. Man, how wonderful to enter into the liberty of saying, Lord, I have no idea how this is all going to work, but I know it all belongs to you. I have no clue. So just do with it as you will. And so the Lord tells each and every one of us today, to bring our dearest and our best to the altar, to leave it in his hands. And God begins to orchestrate the affairs of this life, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, and he brings us to a place where our faith will be in him alone. And slowly but surely, as we go through life, he weans us away from the things of the world. At first, that process touches only our possessions, the things that we can replace. Eventually it begins to touch our, our relationships, which may not be replaced. And then it touches our loved ones, who in my opinion, you can't replace a loved one. But then finally it touches life itself, which is never replaced. There's nothing left but us and God. And through all of that, our Father leads us along the pathway of complete trust in Him. You know, we, we discover that things we thought we couldn't live without don't really matter as much as what we thought they would. Even the dearest and the sweetest things of life take second place to the pleasures of knowing God. I love what David said, that in Him there are pleasures forevermore, speaking about God. And we discover at the very end that God has emptied our hands of everything and that when he's done so, he's filled them with himself. 
which is far greater than anything that we could ever fathom. And I admit that as I I speak these words to you this morning, I'm only dimly aware of what all of it means in life. We we have learned in our family over the past few months to take nothing for granted because there's no guarantees of a future. And we're learning over and over to keep our hands open and holding lightly to what we value because it belongs to God anyways. Some, maybe in this room right now or online, in the midst of a great trial, a storm, a struggle, and you feel pressured about something and you don't want to give it up, you must, you must, I can't spare you the pain of yielding your dearest treasures to God, but I swear, I promise to you, the joy that comes will far exceed and far outweigh the pain that you feel right now. 